Good morning. A warm welcome to you if you're watching us from home this morning, those of us who are watching from overseas and out with South Carolina, a special welcome to you this morning. For those of you in the sanctuary who are back for the first time, we are thrilled and delighted you're here. Thank you. Over the last six months, we have, of course, been struggling with all the restrictions and limitations of the COVID-19 virus. And we have learned a great deal over these last six months in terms of what is a viral infection, what do antibodies look like, what is involved in testing. And so we've learned a great deal. And those of you with children or grandchildren, and if you have participated in e-learning, in other words, they're learning at home from a laptop or a large screen somewhere, you will have quickly learned your limitations. And so I was sent this last week, and I thought it would be worth sharing with you this morning. And having received it, I thought it would share it with you. And it said, parental limitations were highlighted recently when a survey revealed that parents can complete one-third of their children's math questions, but struggle with the other three quarters. And I got such a kick out of that, and I thought, yep, that's me. I would struggle exactly like that. And this morning, as we come to a passage of Scripture, and I suspect in some ways we've had this experience throughout our week studying the Sermon on the Mount, that some Sundays we leave thinking, I think I got about a third of what God was teaching me this morning, but the other three quarters I'm not sure. And so if that's been your experience this morning, what we're going to discover, as we often do on Sunday morning, is that God takes us further and further into a passage of Scripture. He challenges us on the one hand, he encourages and equips and enables on the other. And the passages we're coming to this morning are, to say the least, uh, fairly challenging. And so we're beginning at Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21, as you know, where Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift here in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge." And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. 
Now, there is no question that these passages in the Sermon of the Mount are some of the most challenging we have had thus far. And some of you, I think, will, at least in your mind, be asking a question. And you may be saying, now, Richard, hold on a second. I've enjoyed the Sermon on the Mount thus far, and I think I've understood what's happening But in this passage, the passage you just read, it sounds as if Jesus is dispensing with or contradicting Old Testament teaching. Look at it at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now let me pause for a second. What Jesus is doing here is contrasting his teaching not so much with Old Testament teaching, but with the teaching of those who were explaining it. Now, let me see if I can explain it to you. When Jesus quotes a passage of Scripture, or he makes a direct reference to Scripture, he will often say, it is written, and then he will explain it. But he doesn't do that here. Notice what he does. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. And the passage here, the emphasis is on authority. Jesus is saying, rabbis, teachers of the law, would teach this. But I tell you that. Can you see the contrast taking place here? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. And then he goes on to explain, but I tell you. And in fact, four times in relatively quick succession, Jesus says in the next sections of Scripture, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Jump on down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And in fact, he does that four times in this by the end of the chapter. And he's doing that quite intentionally. Because what he is saying is this, you have heard, but I tell you, what he's saying is this, I tell you, he is in fact highlighting and creating a sense of expectation with what he's about to say. And I imagine the folks who were listening that day kind of leaning in a little, sense of expectation, what is he going to say Why is he saying it this way? And so he has their attention, and rightly so. And what he says here is this. He uses first person singular, and then he almost repeats himself with first person singular pronoun. It's almost as if he is saying, I, I myself tell you. Can you see the point he's making? And so he's saying, you've heard from... Old Testament scholars, teachers of the law, rabbi, they are telling you, but I tell you. Now let me take that a step further and suggest this. Naturally, and theologians, New Testament and Old Testament scholars still continue to do it today, we will hear someone say something, and in fact I suspect you do this on Sunday morning as well, you will say, now what does he mean by that? What are the implications of that? Am I misunderstanding? Have I got it right? What is actually meant when we say, and then we say it? Jesus is saying here, what is meant by murder? 
what is meant by the taking of someone's life. And of course, lawyers continue to do it today, naturally. Old Testament teachers of the law would do it as well. They would say, now, what is meant by murder? Is it murder if someone attacks you, you pick up a knife and defend yourself? Is that treated as murder? Is that different from premeditated, purposeful, intentional planning of taking someone's life? And so those questions would begin to circulate. And what Jesus is saying here is this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And we, of course, we go along with that. And then he says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What is going on here? What is the point Jesus making? The point he's making is this. The same spiritual sickness that would treat someone with contempt and disdain. And that's exactly what that word raka means. Jesus is not saying if you get frustrated or you're angry with your spouse or your son or daughter who didn't bring home milk or bread or pop in at Publix on the way home after a busy day at work and you were expecting them to give you this and this and this. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, that the person who treats someone else by dismissing them treating them with disdain, contempt, hating. That kind of character assassination comes from the same inner spiritual sickness that could lead to death. And Jesus is doing right in this section what he's done throughout the Sermon on the Mount. What he's saying is this, that the external religious attitude is a whole lot different from the inner attitude of heart and mind and soul and character and personality. And he's saying it's one thing to suggest everything is fine on the surface, but deep inside, who are you becoming? Over these last six months, as I mentioned earlier, that, of course, we're facing limitations in terms of what we can do, and many of us have felt our life has been on pause, but because of the restrictions, we've had a little bit more time than we might normally have. And the question that's asked again and again from the Sermon on the Mount is, who are you becoming Are you becoming more Christ-like day by day by day as you live out your faith? As you seek to be obedient to the call of God, seek to apply His Word to your life, is your heart and mind and soul being shaped and fashioned by Him? Or are you allowing the challenges, the difficulties, the frustrations of daily life determine your heart and mind and soul? Who are you becoming? That's exactly the question Jesus is asking here. He's saying, murder is crystal clear. But what about those moments when you do treat someone with disdain or contempt? When you demonstrate hatred? When you show loathing? Disgust with someone else? 
If that is making us feel uncomfortable this morning, you can imagine how Jesus' original listeners felt when he was highlighting what we said minutes ago. It's not enough just to go to the temple. It's not enough to feast at festivals and days of fast. It's not enough to bring a sacrifice to the altar. There is so much greater to live a life that is changed and transformed by the Spirit of God and to walk in obedience and not to treat others in the way he's described. That's exactly what's going on here. This is the hard work of spiritual discipleship, of shaping your life, of refusing to give in to those kinds of emotions, but to call yourself back from the abyss and say, no, I will follow Christ in this area of my life. Not only does he talk about the inward sense of living out your faith, he gives two examples. Notice what he says, verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has said something, has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying the same thing. You cannot turn up to worship each weekend and then live out in your relational interaction with others, relationships that are bad, filled with hatred, animosity, treating folks with contempt. You can't do that. He is saying, pay attention, do the hard work. Will it be humiliating to go to someone and say, please forgive me, I don't know what I was thinking, I was being a jerk, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. That's the hard work of Christian discipleship day by day by day by day. To rein yourself in, not to give in to the temptation. And you may be sitting here this morning or watching on our live stream saying, Richard, if only you knew what that person has done to me. If only you were on the receiving end of how they treated me. If only you knew how badly they'd wounded me. I will never get over this. What are you talking about? It's easy for you to stand in the pulpit and say this. Come on, be real. Well, let me push back a little and say this. If you are wounded at that level, if you are filled with such hatred and animosity, please hear this, that bitterness Animosity, hatred towards someone else is like a ticking time bomb. Always there. Think about it first thing in the morning. Impacts and infects your day. Last thing at night. Are you ready to be done with it? Are you ready to put it to one side and say, Father, forgive and cleanse me. Help me to take the initiative to deal with the open wound. There are times in our lives where the person we need to reconcile with is no longer there, but the bitterness is eating away at your own soul 
the toxicity of it is robbing you of life and joy. And it continues. And it may well be you need to take it, hand it over to God and say, Father, I cannot handle this. And I need you to forgive me and change me and cleanse me and put it behind me. That's what's going on. Then he takes it a step further. And he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. And he moves to another relational dynamic. And he rightly says, do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. And I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Are you cutting off your nose to spite your face? This is the hard work of Christian discipleship. This is the urgency of animosity, replace it with reconciliation because what you may find is this, that you may be saying, Richard, what you're asking is absolutely impossible. I could never do that. No one's asking you to do it in your own strength or your own power. But whenever you take a step of commitment and faith to help deal with an issue, what you will discover is the Holy Spirit will be right along with you He will walk with you. You step out in obedience. He's going to be there. You have a desire to change internally, heart and mind and soul. He's going to empower you. That's what's going on. That's what makes the Sermon on the Mount so challenging. And the question remains, who are you becoming? Are you becoming more Christ-like or less Christ-like? That's what's going on here. And then he takes it a step further. And he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. What is Jesus saying here? I think it's fairly plain. And the pattern he is highlighting is it's not enough on the outside What's going on inside? Is there desire and temptation in this most sensitive of areas? And he's saying, just as he said, with the taking of another's life, he is saying, if your heart and mind is heading in that direction, you need to stop it and stop it now. Stop it. It's like any other addiction, alcohol, substance abuse, It is deceptive, enticing, attractive, and utterly and absolutely enslaving. And you will never pull away from it in your own strength. Never. It appeals to the mind. It feels exciting. It feels enticing. It feels intriguing. And before you know it, you've stepped over the line And find yourself in exactly the situation Jesus is describing. And this kind of behavior, he's not simply talking about adultery, but in the much broader sense, immorality in any sense, you find yourself seduced by it. 
told that you have to satisfy your appetites and desires in this area. And please understand this, that throughout Scripture, whenever we see this sin rearing its ugly head, it will never be satisfied. Never. The only way to deal with it is to stop the subtle, infectious deception of sin is so powerful. And if you are finding yourself there, please hear this. There is no negotiating with sin at this level. There is no rationalizing it. Never give in to the belief it's, it's no big deal. It is a huge deal because it's destroying your relationship with Christ. And those who find themselves in this situation, and sadly I come across it more often than I would, than I would ever wish to. And someone will sit in my office and say, what was I thinking? I have betrayed in heart everyone and everything I've ever loved. How could I possibly do this? And the toxicity has eventually begun to corrode the heart and the individual is coming to their senses. What was I thinking? And I want to reach for the heaviest book in my bookshelf and smack them on the side of the head and say, you weren't thinking. That's the problem. That's the problem. You accepted sin for what it was with all of its promise of attraction and beauty and it ended up as a toxic, infectious, debilitating disease. And usually when I begin to probe a little deeper and ask the person involved where they were in their relationship with Christ in the months leading up to it, what was their prayer life? Were they spending time with him? Were they opening up his word and applying it to their life? I will begin to hear a story of, well, actually, I began to drift a little. My prayer life was not what it once was. My time spent with him had become minimal. And the story unfolds. That's what's going on. Because habitual indwelling sin will rob you of your love and joy for him. Now, if you're here this morning and you have experienced that kind of devastating lifestyle, the pain, the grief, the shame, you might be sitting there, you may be watching online and saying, Richard, I cannot begin to tell you the things I've done, the places I've been. You would not want to know me if I poured out my heart to you. And you may well be right. But please hear this. God is absolutely interested in where you've been and what you've done. But he's more interested and who you are becoming. He's more interested in forgiveness and grace and transformation. He's more interested in cleansing and renewing and refreshing and welcoming you back. His primary interest is exactly that, because please hear this, there is no place so dark his love cannot find you. There is no sin so heinous, no lifestyle so disgusting that he would not wrap his arms around you and assure you of his love and grace and welcome you back. That's the essence of the gospel. 
That's what the love of Christ is like. And if you have withdrawn from him and your life of prayer has drifted and worship has no longer an importance to you and there is habitual sin in your life that you need to deal with, please hear this. He has not abandoned you. He will not walk away from you. He will not give up on you. But he's calling you again in your darkest moment to understand where you have been, to repent and repent profoundly of that sin and to come back to him afresh and again and to seek his forgiveness. And if this has made you uncomfortable this morning, it may be that God is speaking directly to you. Not about the external but the internal, the heart, the mind, the soul, the person. And by his grace this morning, you can begin again. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that it is transformative as it touches us, heart and mind and soul. Father, forgive us for the moments in our lives that we have wandered from you. We have given in to sin and all of its deceptive, enslaving, tranquilizing nature. Renew us, refresh us, enable us to put the past behind us and to live for you. Father, help us this week to focus not so much on where we have been or what we have done, but on who we are becoming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.